Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Hello, my friends. Hello. Welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Yes, weird Neil Diamond reference there. I have no idea why I did it. But that's because I'm excited to speak to you because this week we are once again learning from the very best. That's what we do. That's what we do on The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Each week I speak to a world champion, an Olympic champion, a world number one, or a world record holder. And we get into the nitty gritty, finding out what these champions do to be the very best. We want to know what is the difference between winning silver and winning gold. We want to know what's the difference between crossing the line first and crossing the line second. We find that out on this podcast. And this week, we are learning from the world of snooker. Yes, Graham Dot won the 2006 World Snooker Championship, beating Peter Ebden in what a lot of people call one of the slowest matches ever. And... On this week's podcast, Graham admits that he feels that he's never really given the recognition for winning that final, for becoming a champion, because that match is remembered for how long it took. So that's brought up on this week's podcast. Graham does talk about the good side of becoming a champion when he got to parade that trophy in front of his home football fans. He's a big supporter of the Glasgow Rangers football team and they play at Ibrox and he got to present the trophy in front of those fans. He said that was incredible. But then we also hit a lot of low moments with Graham. After he became world champion, he was suffering from depression and he talks in quite a lot of detail on this week's podcast about his deal with depression. And then he talks about his resurgence being back in the final in 2010, where he lost to Neil Robertson. And he also talks about his 2004 final, where he lost to Ronnie O'Sullivan. We talk about that and much, much more on this week's podcast, including the mental exhaustion involved in the sport. And he also talks about how he broke his wrist playing football in China with other snooker players. Yes, if you're a professional snooker player, don't go in goal. It can end up in tears. Not saying Graham cried, but (laughs) you know what I mean. Before we get to the interview with Graham, I want to tell you about 99designs. 99designs is a design website where if you need something designing, 
It could be a business card, it could be a poster, it could be a website. You can go to 99designs and what they do is they offer your idea to talented freelancers around the world who try and produce the best design based on your specifications. And then if you're happy with what they're starting to produce, you can work with these designers to make iterations so you can get a product that you are 100% happy with. If you're not happy with what is being produced, you can always get your money back. They've got all the terms and conditions on their website. If you want to check out their service, just go to sportachino.com forward slash 99designs. If you go through our link, sportachino.com forward slash 99designs, and you do end up being happy with their service and using their service, then we will be getting a proportion of that fee, just to be transparent with everyone. But it is a product that I personally use, so I do highly recommend it. All right, do you know what else I recommend? I recommend that we now listen from the very best. We listen to the world snooker champion. It's Graham Dot. <laughs> The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Graham Dot, welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. 2006 World Snooker Champion. So great to have you on the program. Let's start at the beginning. Why don't you tell us how you first got interested in snooker, please? Um, it, it was really a, a Christmas present I got from my mum and dad. They got me a small six foot table when I was about eight year old and um, I kind of just started from there and, and kind of took it up quite quickly. Oh fantastic and were you playing against friends, family or were you mainly just practicing by yourself? Oh it was mainly just kind of playing with your family and my brothers and my dad and but I, I just seemed to find it easier than, than they did um, and then I was playing some of my friends and that as well but it was, I, I just found it kind of quite easy to start with. Mm. And then, of course, that is a smaller table, and then, of course, uh, the actual real snooker tables are a lot bigger. So did you find it quite easy to go from the smaller table to the larger table? Yeah, obviously, it's a big difference from going from a six-foot table to a 12-foot table. It kind, of, it kind of looks like a football pitch in comparison to the small table. But the, I can remember my, my granddad and my uncle used to play snooker every Saturday, and I would go up and watch them. And um, one of the days they let me have a shot, and I can I can always remember my uncle telling me after it that he kind of looked at my granddad and he couldn't actually believe that I was potting so many balls. So I think the, the very first time I played, I hit like a twenty break, but obviously first time on a big table, it was it was kind of quite good at that stage. Mm, yeah, I remember when I first played, I, I found it very frustrating, and and obviously I didn't have the the same level of ability nor the patience that you did when you were at that age. Were there any particular drills that you would do to help improve in those early stages? Not really. No, I think you could just. I think just the more you play, I can always remember um, watching the World Championships on like a, a little portable black and white TV I had in my room while I would be playing on the six-foot table and just imagining if I ever got there what it would be like, but never thinking for a minute that I would ever be good enough to get there. But I can just remember not playing anything, any specific routines, but just playing all the time. I just was playing constantly. Mm. Who were some of the players you looked up to back then? Probably Jimmy White, I would think. I always liked the way Jimmy White played and... It was always a shame that he never actually managed to win the world, but I would have said he was probably 
I never exactly had a hero, really. I know a lot of people always say they did, but I never had a hero, but I always liked Jimmy White and hoped he won. And then when Stephen Hendry came along being Scottish, that made a difference as well. Mm. And you said there when you were watching that you, you never thought that that could be you. Was there a moment when you were younger, like, for example, a big tournament victory or something like that, where your mindset started to change, where you did believe that you could be in the in the same calibre of some of these top players, such as Jimmy White and Stephen Hendry? Yeah, I think when I won, I won a lot of tournaments as, um, in Scotland as being just an amateur. And I was winning a lot of amateur tournaments. And then you go to you to play in kind of like British tournaments and things like that. And I, I remember going to play in the British under 19s. Um, and I was going there as a, a 14 year old. Or I, I think I'd just turned 15. And there was an actual fifth, uh, an under 15 tournament there at the same time. And I was trying to enter that. And um, the way my birthday fell, I couldn't actually get in it. I was too old by about a day or something. Oh. And I had to play in the under-19s. So I was obviously playing in that, expecting I've no chance of winning it, but I'll go in it anyway, since I'm here. And I actually won it. And um, I think when I won that, I thought, I'm, I think I'm actually kind of quite good at this. I might have a chance of trying to do it for a living. Mm. Uh, and of course you did, and, and you, you did it to, to great success. Now... Obviously, you you won in in two thousand six. You you were won the the world title, but of course, you were in the final in in two thousand and four as well. Just tell us about yeah. that whole that whole experience there, and, and and obviously your your feelings after that final. Um, I was, I was obviously no matter what anybody says, you're just still disappointed when you lose. You can't. I know you, in the cold light of day, you look back at it and you think, "Well, I've done well to get to the final," but you've still got that kind of. You're still devastated that you lost, but also to, to be in the final of the World Championships was was unbelievable. I mean, it was actually quite emotional coming and getting introduced for the final because you, you remember things like watching it back when you've got a black and white portable and you were playing on a six foot table, and then normally every year you're watching the final, and then I was actually in it. It was um it was quite surreal. And obviously Ronnie was Ronnie Sullivan played unbelievable that year. It's probably the best I think he's ever played. Uh two thousand and four he couldn't he just played like a machine. So there was there was no shame in losing to Ronnie. But um you were still a little bit disappointed that you lost. Mm. Are you someone who gets quite emotional in, in other matches at all? No. Very rarely. I'm, I would probably say I'm quite emotionally dead in comparison to a lot of people. <laughs> but I, I just felt I felt quite emotional at that particular time. Mm. Did you do anything to try and control it, or you just kind of went with the, with the moment? No, I think I think once I got out and I got introduced and I was there, and once the game started, I was fine. I, I'm sure it must be the same for football players and they're in the tunnel and they're nervous. And then once they get out and the whistle blows, they'll, they'll be okay. And I think that was the same with me. Once I got there, I was fine. I can always remember in the final, I just felt I'd ran completely out of steam. Just in the, the World Championships is so is so hard and so long that um, it's different from other tournaments. Mm. Following that that defeat, following coming runner up in that final, did you look back and reflect on it? And were there any particular things that you you felt you learned that you were able to help when you did get to your next final in two thousand and six? 
Yeah, I think I think with the World Championships, especially, it's, it's a psychological thing. I think the good thing we we, we stuck with the, with the World Championships is it tests it tests every part of your game. You you, you can't possibly flick your way to the to being world champion. It's just impossible. It's the, the format's too long. There's too many things can go wrong. And I think it, it was good to learn to control your emotions when you were playing there because there's so many different psychological things can happen. You've got to sleep on a lead. You don't normally get that in any other match at snooker. You've got to go to bed that night and you're nine-seven down and you think you really should be ten-six in front and that kind of thing. And I've always been quite good at dealing with things like that. Mm, yeah, one of the things I've heard about tennis players is they almost automatically forget about the last point and they're always looking to the next point, like the next point is the most important and it doesn't matter what happened before. Yeah. Is that something similar that works for snooker players? Yeah, I think it does. And I think, that, as I said, the World Championships, because it's so long, the first round is first to ten, as well, the majority of all the tournaments are first to four or first to five. So it's double right away just for the first round. And then you're first to 13, first to 17, and first to 18 for the final. And it's very, very long. And um, you, you need to have that sort of attitude because you're going to make a lot of mistakes. It's, you're, it's just only, you're only human. You're going to miss and you're going to play some bad shots. and You're also going to play some bad sessions at the, at the world. But you, the, the big thing is to try and limit the damage that you do. So if maybe if you have a really bad session, but you only lose it 5-3, a lot of players might lose that session 7-1 or 6-2 and I think that's the difference mm. it must be really difficult sometimes though to concentrate Like, like we'll talk more about the 2006 final in a moment but that was at the time the, the longest ever final I've also seen you, you played one yeah. match against Peter Ebden which lasted 7 hours and 18 minutes in a first round match in a world championship mm-hmm. these are epic encounters how do you stay focused? Well, it's just it's very hard. I mean, I think the what you're saying there, both those matches involved Peter Ebden. Mm. And um, I actually got on quite well with Peter Ebden. I think he's a really, really nice guy, but he's incredibly slow and hard to play against. And um, it can just be very, very frustrating. And it's very, very hard to concentrate. But you've got to do it. There's not really much you can do. It's... <laughs> You either, you either bite the bullet and try and concentrate or, or you, know, you end up giving up and losing the match. Mm-hmm. You must be absolutely mentally exhausted afterwards. Well, yeah, you are. There's, there's, you, you go back, and, as, as I said, especially the World Championship, you're, you're exhausted from about the quarterfinals mm-hmm. because every every time you go out and play, you're concentrating for three, four hours. and you, It's not physically hard to play snooker, but mentally it's, it's ridiculously hard. And um, There's times you think, I just can't go back out and do this again. I don't know how I'm going to go back out tomorrow morning and play, but you, you end up, you just do it. You just manage to get through an adrenaline. Mm. Do you do much exercise other than snooker? Not really, no. I, I did play golf. Um, I've not played now for about maybe two years because the, the, the calendar's that busy with the snooker. I don't really get that much chance to play golf. and The weather's never that great in Scotland either. So <laughs> even when you did have the chance to play, the weather wasn't great. Or you've got the kids and so... I've not played for a while, but I did play golf to a decent standard. But I did see, or I did read, that um, you missed a few uh, tournaments a few years ago because you got an injury playing football. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was actually, I was actually at a tournament. I was playing, we were playing in China, and there happened to be a, a football pitch at the side of a hotel. And 
some of the the snooker boys so we'll get into the football. So I mean it wasn't even anything, it was just a freak accident. It was no even there was no like, hard tackles or anything. I just happened to be I was getting more and more tired and I thought I'll go in goals. And somebody took a shot and I stuck my hand out to save it and saved it and my, broke my wrist. Oh. Which was a bit of a disaster. Yeah, my my brother's so a my magician. Finished as well. <laughs> yeah, my brother's a magician, and <laughs> he never wants to go in goal because he thinks, oh, if I make one save, that's my career down the drain. Well, that's exactly what I've done. So I don't do anything now anymore. I'm <laughs> lucky if you get me playing ten pound ball, and I'm scared to do anything now. Uh, I bet. Who else was playing in this game? Um, Who took the shot? In I fact, Emily sells me like the, the, the one that took the shot was Tom Ford. And uh, I think Mark Selby was playing, Mark Williams, uh, Jamie Cope, there was a few other ones as well. I can't remember exactly who was all playing, but I know I know Tom Ford took the shot. And I remember saying to Mark Selby, I think I've, I've really hurt my wrist. But I, was, I never actually looked at it. And then I, I happened to look and went, oh my God, he said, it's definitely broke. It was all twisted and that was horrible. Clearly a football fan. You're also a Rangers fan. And again, we're going to talk about yeah. 2006 next, but you had uh, the opportunity to present the trophy in front of the uh, Ibrox fans. How was that? Yeah. Oh, it was amazing. It really was amazing. I mean, it's again, I can I can remember being in the tunnel and I was getting introduced to come out and I, and I thought, I wonder what they'll be like. Because I just thought, I've always, I mean, I've always been a Rangers fan and I've never had the fact that I was a Rangers fan. But you just sometimes don't know. I thought, I don't want to go out and nobody claps. Or, but I mean, it was amazing. It really was amazing. I went out and, and they were all singing my name and it was brilliant. Really, really great day. Mm. In fact, to be honest, I probably enjoyed that better than actually winning the world. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was really good. Yeah, when you did win uh, the World Championships, what was going through your mind at the time? Um, I, I made the I made the schoolboy error when I played Peter Ebden of actually thinking that I'd won, which which was pretty, pretty stupid really. But um, when I think back on it now, but I had won, I had won the, the three sessions that we'd played, so I built up a lead of fifteen seven, and uh, first eighteen. I mean, it's a pretty big lead, and I was playing better than Peter for the three day for the three sessions. And I just thought, well, that's it, I've won now. And um, I can remember actually in the dressing room, I actually fell asleep. I went to sleep in the dressing room and I slept for about an hour and a half before I went out that night. I must have completely and utterly just switched off and thought, I've, I've done it, that's me one. Mm. And I went out for the final session and just felt completely relaxed and then just couldn't put anything. <laughs> I was just terrible. <laughs> it was horrible. It was just a horrible, it was, it was the worst feeling I think I've ever had. It was just a horrible feeling because it was as if I'd forgot how to play the game. And mm. and then he started playing well and slowly was dragging it back and it was just horrible. But obviously eventually I kind of fell over the line but it, it kind of took the gloss off it for me as well as how long the game was taking because he was obviously taking forever to play all shots and I felt I got, um, I felt I got some bad press after it. As if it was me that was making the game slow when it was nothing to do with me. It was Peter was, was playing so slow, but I kind of got tagged with it as well. Mm. Have you slept during a match ever since? Uh, not in between. No, absolutely no chance. Not in between sessions. Because <laughs> I won the third session and we maybe finished it. We'll say we finished at five o'clock, and I was due again to play it 
at seven o'clock. So I quickly got something to eat and then I was in the dressing room and I just flaked out and, and slept till about half past six. It's never, I've never ever done it before. Mm-hmm. Can't imagine I would do it again. You'd imagine you would be that nervous, and but I, I just was, I just thought I'd won. I'll never do that again. Are you someone who who gets nervous much? I think everybody gets nervous. I think um, I think when you're not nervous, um, you do what I just said there. I think that's what happens when you're not nervous because I walked out mm. there and felt felt fantastic, felt nice and relaxed, felt and that's that's when you don't play your best. I think you play your best when you're when you're nervous and, and you're probably a little bit scared and intimidated. I think that's when you play your best. Mm. Are you someone with a regular pre-match routine? Are you someone who might have some superstitions or something like that before a big match? No, I used to have things a lot of years ago when I was kind of first starting, but I, I would probably say the only kind of superstition I have now is not to be superstitious. I just don't. <laughs> I just try, even if I, even if I start to think, so you, you think silly things like I'll need to wear that shirt because I, I played with, I don't like it. As soon as I think of that, I deliberately wear the opposite shirt. I just mm. don't want to get involved in because I think it can get it can get, it can get really bizarre. Some of the things people do. Uh, so your su- superstition is uh, to do the opposite of superstitions. I like yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> on this podcast I speak to many different sports stars and athletes and everything like that um, and one of the big things is nutrition is nutrition important for a snooker player and, and if so what is your typical diet like <laughs> um, I, would, I would say personally I would say no <laughs> I don't really think it makes a great deal of difference but, but that's because I'm pretty lazy and eat whatever I want. <laughs> I've always been lucky in the extent that I don't really put that much weight on, although I'm starting to put weight on now, so my, my waistcoats are getting a bit bigger. But um, I know there's people like Neil Robertson who's, who's turned vegan, Peter Edden's vegan, and if they think that works for them, well, good luck, there's, not, there's nothing wrong. But I, I've, I've made three finals at the World Championships and my diet's terrible, so I don't, I don't really think it makes any difference. As I said, it's no, you don't need to be. It's, it's not a physical sport. It's not as if we're running. Mentally, you need to be pretty fit, I would think. So you, you can do some work mentally, but I don't think physically it makes a good Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. We'll be back with Graham in just a moment, but if you like what you're listening to, then maybe like our Facebook page. Just see what I did there. Just go to facebook.com forward slash best in the world with Richard Parr. So you'll always be updated on what we're up to on the program. You'll see the latest episode, maybe a few pictures. You'll also be able to find out potentially who I've got lined up. I, I like to give a few clues on whom I'm about to interview. And sometimes I like to give you the opportunity to ask questions yourself to future guests. We're also on Twitter. Well, I am personally at Richard underscore par plus Sportachino, which looks after this podcast. You can also follow Sportachino at Sportachino, S-P-O-R-T-U-C-C-I-N-O. So that's all the social media, but let's return to the conversation with the world snooker champion, Graham Dot. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. What's a typical training day like for you, Graham? It's probably not as much as, as, a, as a lot of players would be. A typical training day for me is maybe just go in to the, to the snooker room about 10 o'clock and, and I'll practice away until about maybe half 12, 1 o'clock, get some lunch and back in again and I'll finish about 4 o'clock. And um, so that's that's basically it. I know there's, there's lots of players, but there's lots of players that practice a lot more, but there's also a lot of players that practice a lot less. I think it's just finding what's right. I think that the problem that I think a lot of amateurs do is the they just pound the practice table and they want to play 10 hours a day, but they end up, after three or four hours, you end up practicing stuff you shouldn't really practice and they muck about with their technique and things like that. I think is I think if you do three to four hours of good, proper practice, I think that's enough, personally, for me anyway. Mm. Is, is that for you because you've now reached that high level, you you know, you've become a world champion, you, you can do one, four, seven breaks and, and things like that, that for you it's more just staying sharp? Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think the the way the snooker calendar is now, we're playing tournaments all the time, basically, and um, there's not really as much time to practice. As well, before you would play a match and if you lost, you might not have another tournament for two months, so you would be practicing to try and fill that time, but now you lose there's a tournament the next week. So you're you've not really you're only keeping your arm going. You're only practicing to keep yourself going. Unless there's something you think there's something actually wrong, like mechanically with your with your cue action and you need to go and practice. There's not really that much need, I don't think, to do it as much. In the last ten years there's become a lot more international tournaments. Is that something you enjoy? Um Probably not. I've, I've been one of the ones that's kind of been... I, it's great for the game. I'm just purely talking personal. I've got obviously got two kids and it's it's hard. It's hard when you're travelling all the time. 
Um, so personally for me, I, I don't, I sometimes don't enter all the tournaments as well because um, it obviously affects my ranking, but you've got to, I've got to try and juggle it between personal time and time with the kids and, and also earning the money. Mm. There's been quite a few changes over the last few years since Barry Hearn's taken over. What have you thought about some of the changes and are there any other changes you'd like to see to the sport of snooker? Um, well, he's changed it. To, he's changed it kind of dramatically now. Where, it, where it's all, we all start like Wimbledon, we all start in the one two eight from the same round as well. In previous years, if you were ranked in the top sixteen, you would be you would be seeded through to like the TV stages of tournaments. And I preferred it that way personally. I think the game is the game as it is just now is too hard for young players coming through because. Of playing like Ronnie O'Sullivan first round, as was the way it was when I first started. I was playing somebody roughly of my own standard, and then the second round they would gradually get better. Third round, fourth round, fifth round, then you would hit another Ronnie O'Sullivan. And I just think some of these boys—it's a very expensive game. If you're travelling, you want to enter all the tournaments, and you're travelling all over the world. And if you lose in the first round, you don't get any money. So I, I think it's very hard for the young boys coming through to to make a living out of the game. Mm. All right, let's go back to just looking at your your career, and and we'll talk about the the 2010 final as well. But the the few years after you won in 2006, Graham were were very difficult for you, weren't they? Um, you you were suffering from yeah. from depression. Um, that must have been such a difficult time. Could you even think about snooker at that time? No, it was a, a, multiple. I never actually even knew I had depression at the time. I, yeah. I knew there was something wrong with us, but at the time I was just ignorant to it. I never, I never realised what exactly what it was because my my father-in-law um, had died. He was my manager, and he was. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be playing snooker. He'd be back me from when I was a kid, and um, he would always be all the tournaments with me. And obviously, when I won the world, it was nice that he was actually there, but he was in the, the latter stages of of his cancer. And um, I find it wasn't actually long after I won the world that he passed away. And um, I just never dealt with it very well. And I just wasn't, I mean, I was showing up to tournaments, but I wasn't playing. I mean, it was just, I had lost, I don't even know how many matches in a row I had lost. I was just showing up to tournaments, beat home, depressed, got in the next tournament, beat home, depressed. I mean, it was just, it was just horrible. It was a horrible time to be in. And, and obviously my wife told me I need to go to the doctors and she, she said, I think you're depressed. But, I never realised I was as bad as what actually was. Mm. Once you you were at the doctors, how long do you think it it took you to, yeah, end the depression? Well, I mean, I think I think the thing is that nowadays with depression, it's not as bad as it was kind of twenty years ago. I think people are more open to telling me they've actually got it now. Mm. And I think that the big thing for me was actually going to the doctors. And the doctor speaking to him, and the doctor actually saying, "Look, if you everything that you're saying, that's that's depression." And I, I, you instantly even just feel a bit. Not, I'm not saying you feel better, but you just you think, well, at least I know there's something wrong with me." Because I mean, if you were sitting, I would just be. I could just be sitting staring at a TV that wouldn't even be on for three, four hours, and just that was terrible. And to actually be told you've got something wrong with you, and then obviously you go on some medication, and and, I, and I'm on medication just now. I'll probably always, I'll probably always just be on it. But um, I'm I'm 
happy now. Uh, everything's everything's okay. It's under control. But it's something I've always going to need to watch for probably the rest of my life. Mm. No, well, th- thank you for sharing that, Graham. And of course, 2010, four years after becoming champion, you, you did reach the final again against Neil Robertson. With everything which had happened in in those years between, uh, did it feel very different being in that final? Yeah, that that personally for me that was better. 2010, I've got better memories of that than I have of 2006. For, for, for a couple of reasons. For one, for I played really well. I played really really well in 2010. Every every match that I played, I played great. Um, and I was now getting the press that I thought I deserved. As of 2006, I never really get any credit for winning the world. Mm. It just all they wanted to talk about was how slow the game was, and it was just I never really good press for it. And also in 2010, it was great to know that I could still do it after obviously the years of depression and coming back, and it was it was nice to do it again. And I just ran out of steam, or, or I think I probably could have beaten you personally. I, I just completely ran out of steam at the end. Mm. You mentioned Stephen Hendry earlier, and please correct me if I'm wrong or, or where I got this information was uh, incorrect. But according to what I said, it it says that you you never managed to beat Stephen Hendry. Is is that true? Well, as I, I, I didn't beat him. Uh, well, I did actually beat him, but he was kind of. It was like two years before he retired, and obviously he's still very good. And it was in a small tournament; it wasn't exactly a, a really big tournament. And I managed to win; I think I won four nothing. But that was the first time I'd ever beaten. Mm. I think we played about nine times, and he'd beat me nine times. With with that, a in lot m- of them five fours, right enough, but still. Mm-hmm. With that, with that in mind, does it sometimes become like a a, a mental thing where? when you face someone who you haven't been able to beat, that you kind of think, oh, I can't beat this guy? Was that part of it at all? Or is it just because he's Stephen Hendry and he, he's an amazing player? Yeah, I think it's probably the second part. Because <laughs> I, I never ever went into the match thinking... I, I think that the, sometimes you get... I think you just get a bogey player. I think you can get that in, in, in a lot of sports. Well, I can remember actually talking about the same guy, Stephen Hendry, he lost three times to Mark Johnson Allen. We only played three times and Mark Johnson Allen beat him. Now, I don't even know if you know Mark Johnson Allen, but I, I just think you get you just get a bogey players. And I think no matter whenever I played Stephen Hendry, he played unbelievably well. <clears throat> it never seemed to matter. I could watch him the round before and he'd be terrible. And then he would play me and he would play unbelievable. <laughs> and it just happened to be, <clears throat> sorry, it just happened to be like that. But, um, he always seemed to play well against me. Yeah, it might be up for it against you more than 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 he he was against other players as well. I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna wrap this up, Graham. But um, obviously you're 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 forty years old now. Um, been playing this for yeah. many many years. How much longer do you think you've got in playing competitively in in the sports snooker? Um, I think I've probably still. I think I've got another. I would say I've probably got another good four five years where I, where I could still do some damage at the game then after that I'll still play but I might not be as good as, as kind of I might be on the slide but then but I think with snooker it's, it's, there's no reason why you can't play at 45, 46 as long as your, your health's okay mm. 
Mm. I don't think, as I said before, it's not a physical game and my eyesight's okay, touch wood. So there's not really any reason why you can't. I mean, as long as you're still dedicated enough, I'm working with a new coach just now as well. So I'm still trying. One of the other things we talk on this podcast a lot is is goal setting. Um, obviously, the the main goal for every snooker player is to become the world champion. Is that always your goal every year when playing, or, or do you set other things that you want to achieve? I, I think I think to be honest, snooker's actually getting that difficult now. That um, you're actually just your goals to win any tournament throughout the year mm. would would be a decent season because. It, it, it's so hard for any one player to dominate the game because there's so many players now. It's getting a bit like golf where every week you could have a different winner. So I think just to win a tournament at the start of the year would be a, a kind of a normal, realistic and decent goal. Well, Graham, it's been so good to talk to you. Thank you for all of this amazing insight on this week's Best in the World. Just before you go, can we find you on social media or on a website? And, and if so, can you let us know where that is, please? Um... I think the only thing I was on was Facebook, I think. Just just my name and Facebook, just get in top. You'll find me on that. Well, we'll put a link to that on the description page of this podcast. Graham Dot, thank you so much for being on the podcast and thank you for being the best in the world. No problem, thank you. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Great stuff there from Graham. Really appreciated his honesty and his openness about everything that has happened to him throughout his career. Really appreciate his time on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr. You may have noticed in the conversation we did mention Stephen Hendry. And Stephen Hendry's already been on the Best in the World with Richard Parr, the multi-time world snooker champion. You can go back and listen to that episode at acast.com forward slash best. Also on sportachino.com. All of the episodes are there, including another one with a snooker champion. Yes, we don't just leave it at two. We've got three of them so far. We spoke to Sean Murphy. He's been on the podcast, and you can also find that on iTunes, where I'm hoping that you're already subscribed. If you're not, please press the subscribe button, and please give us a rating and review. It only takes a minute or so, and it matters a lot to our podcast hopefully we'll have a few more snooker players in the forthcoming weeks where we can learn from the very very best all right that's been it for this week's best in the world with richard Parr. if you like what you listen to and you want to support our show you can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash best in the world we produce this with a free budget we've been doing it for over two years but you've been able to give back to us by going and becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash best in the world thanks to those of you who have done it already and if you'd like to support our show please go to that website all right that's it for this week i'll be back with you next week with another world champion olympic champion world record holder or world number one as we continue to learn from the best in the world goodbye the best in the world podcast with richard parr even on a budget quality is non-negotiable 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.